0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown.
1: All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Petronerds Podcast. Um I am delighted to uh, be here today again with the same dates. This is, but this is episode uh, forty-six of the Petronas podcast, and uh, my guest and. Sort of co-host and interviewer, and my flipperoo is Gabby Richmond. And if you didn't listen to the podcast episode last week, you really need to because we cover, we talk a lot about um, chi- a lot about China, um, and talk about Europe and everything going on with the gas side and, and the very topical issues, and had a conversation on that. Um, and today um, we're doing part two of this because it was a relatively long conversation. So we're doing part two, and we're going to talk more about the domestic stuff. And so um, Gabby Richmond is with the Denver Petroleum Club. Uh, she's awesome. And she's sorta of, the flipperoo, is she's sort of interviewing me and asking the questions and I'm I'm sitting here. I, I truthfully obviously I study a lot, but I did not I didn't know the questions. I did not prepare. So we will see how this one goes. Um, but to timestamp it, it is still uh, Tuesday, April 26, 2022. We haven't seen the news because we've been in this room for a while. Um, and it's about 9 p.m. So things At this point, I think we might just uh, end up in here forever. I'm like, I don't know, forever came out. Know? <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> There were some technical difficulties in getting things started. So we're really hoping that uh, all these devices are, are still recording. But um, it's episode 46, Tuesday, April 26, 2022, part two with Gabby Richmond. Brent is still one, It's one. Actually, it's probably changed. But 106 for Brent, 102 uh, for WTI, and just under seven bucks, 685 for US Henry Hub, and the Dutch GTF, about 32 bucks. Um, so with that, we've talked about the global oil market, or we've talked about China. Not so much global oil market. We could keep going on that. Um, but we, I was, I was sort of leaning into the U.S. side before we paused. So um, we're, take it away. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to put professional flipperoo on my LinkedIn title, I think,
0: going forward, because I really love that. Uh, but you brought up Jensaki and I think you brought up SPR, and I want to start there, that 180 million barrels. And I want to get your thinking on how much that's really going to help prices in the short term in the market, and kind of what your tentative forecast would be for the next couple of months if that's going to change wti or any nat gas materially
1: you know i think we've sort of seen it um to the extent that it helped, and it it, it did prove the same the same way uh biden was able to you know yeah. increase nat gas prices by saying hey we're gonna we're gonna support europe and yeah. exporting yeah. um and is the same i think he was hoping for a bigger dip on on the oil market. And to be fair, I mean, this administration thought they were going to get a deal with Iran really wanted to get um, this nuclear deal with Iran. And, and so that therefore Iran would be adding these barrels back. And that nuclear deal is not happening. It just seems dead in the water. Um, and there's I mean, these hardliners um, in Iran have really prevented that. Um, so I think that's really tricky for them. And so this um, this coordinated SPR release with other countries, but largely the U.S. being 100, 180 million barrels is the largest by far. It's, it's a extraordinary amount, and it's a million barrels per day. Um, that million barrels per day didn't seem to have a. I know we, we saw some something about some cargo shipments leaving the U.S. from the SPR going abroad, um, but I haven't like the timing of which you're going to basically how long it's going to go through at a million barrels per day. One, that was a direct, so that is a direct offset to Iran of sort of adding these barrels back. But I think the market that already sort of took it and interpreted it and, and it it was what it was, which didn't impact the market that much. So a million barrels a day, the U S consumes about, about 20 million barrels per day. Um, so that's a drop. I mean, it's not a drop in the bucket, but it's, it's 1 million barrels per day out of a 20 million barrel day market. And then the U S is, is a hundred million barrel, or the I'm sorry, the globe is a hundred million barrel day market. So that's a million barrels out of a hundred million barrels. Like we're, it's not a lot. It, it is. It's not. It's more of a drop in the bucket there. And 180 million barrels is a is 1.8 days uh, of global oil demand. And so it's it's helpful in the extent of like you're trying to ease the pressure a little bit. But the reality is is like are unless we have, and I would like to get into the demand side a bit more, but. If if demand cools, it'll be sort of a different story. But as you are going into your summer driving season, and if you have further volatility and issues um, with 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 crude supplies, then you've guaranteed yourself a higher forward price because the that those volumes won't be there, or yeah. theoretically they won't be. Depending, on you're gonna on have that. to buy it back, eventually. right? <laughs> and and the signal from the White House was that they they were bragging on themselves because they were saying, hey, we're buying, we're we're telling the the. We're telling the producers we'll buy this back, and it's like, okay, well, that's the first thing you've you've done kindly to the, these producers. Um, yeah, besides bad mouthing them on national TV, um, yeah. So it's it's been. I think it's it's really quite. That the piece is sort of quite messy, but the the actual SPR release I think is, is pretty muted, um, and I, I think I don't know if it's I would say desperation on the on the administration's part, but it was it's definitely an attempt to um, one is it shows that they don't really understand the oil and gas market, not just domestically but but globally, um, and two I think it's it's just not um, that the concept that they are going to really dent it um, is is not necessarily going to work. Now personally I think demand is going to be, uh, is gonna weaken. And I, I don't think that we can have high oil prices. And I actually heard this on on BBC before I was coming over here, is that um, the World Bank said this exact thing, and I say it in every meeting and every briefing I give with all my clients to every presentation, every panel, is that we have high oil prices and high everything prices. And people really don't appreciate how bad that is. And that's going to start curbing and eating into demand. Um, and it's going to be problematic. Now, the World Bank was talking about how in the '70s, we were we did this fuel switching, and we won't be doing that. And I sort of disagree because I think we will be from net gas to coal. We'll definitely be doing burning more coal in the near term. Um, but from the oil perspective, I think it can eat into demand, and that that is going to have a cooling effect. But for the administration, for politically, it's not going to be good because that means the economy is declining, and so it it really is a bad situation. You have eight and a half percent inflation. You have hundred dollar crude oil. Um, and yeah, you, su- you suppose we have a strong economy, but we can't get anyone to work. Um, so you do, everything's tight and it's messy and it's adding to that inflation. And then you're getting, you know, further issues from all the global supply chain issues we talked about with China, which is, which is, uh, you know, hitting, you know, the country on various levels and various sectors. So it's a perfect storm really. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, when you talk about demand and I've seen
0: the same numbers as you, that demand is decreasing and year over year where we actually have less demand, going into the driving season and the summer season than we did last year. And it sounds like a similar story to everything that's happening with the Fed. You know, a a lot of the issues that we're seeing on the inflation side are from supply. And the only thing you can really do is control demand. And that's what these prices are doing in terms of gas is controlling demand. And basically, people are just driving less. They're choosing to I don't know if they're
1: choosing to fly less. I've seen well, prices for I mean, flights these days. No, and if you've, if you've been to DAA, I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I don't think that, I don't think we've really seen the prices prices impact, you know, the straight up gasoline prices impact the consumer in the US. Because people always say, OK, well, adjusting for inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the issue now is that if you have $4 gasoline and you have 8.5% inflation, which will probably be more like 10% inflation, I mean, going to the grocery store is where you feel it the most. I mean, coming back, I mean, went to the grocery store on Sunday and I never, I, I order my groceries. So, which you still feel it there, but going to the grocery store and you barely fill up your bags and it's 200 bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's really serious. So for a family of, you know, a family that's you're trying to feed, you know, multiple people, it, this is really, really serious. So gas, it's the high everything prices. And it's that gasoline in the summer, depending on where, how things look in the summer and how confident the consumer is um, and also where they see inflation. So inflation has a lot to do with inflation expectations. And this is why when when people get really excited about wages going up, you should not get excited because going to wa- make a less. Yeah, it does. And wage price spirals are like r- something the Fed is quite fearful of which I should have been fearful of a year ago. Um, but those wage price But inflation was, was transitory. Yes. Um, even though Didn't it, you hear? It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, month over month. Uh, yeah. At least on the record, on the, this podcast, I have talked about inflation since the beginning of last year. Yeah, Timestamp, um, we'll go back and say... It was fe- yeah, I mean, it's February of last year, but it's 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 really scary because the month over month, people think it might be peaking, but it's like, okay, well, where does it peak at? 10%. Um, but I think in the summer, and as we're looking into these forward months, and I, I talk, you know, about... You know, mortgage rates and, and the economy and everything. I would like to get into that too, but it all feeds into like the health of the consumer. So if the consumer doesn't feel good and is not healthy um, and people say, well, everybody's got lots of money in their savings accounts and everything and, and the home prices are up. and Okay, that, that's one thing, but there's multiple factors that drive um, oil demand. And so oil demand growth is a big factor in oil prices. And so I don't think like IEA came out and was talking about, Oil demand declining a little bit, um, but if you saw their data, it was sort of their month over month data from March to April uh, was that they actually, so March was like, hey, we revised demand up for 2021. April was, we actually revised demand down for 2021. So it's all over the place. And you don't, uh, demand globally is always backward, look. you know, you're always revising it and it's backward looking. Um, OPEC came out in April and said that they were concerned. So they actually cited um, sovereign debt, you know, concerns over potentially sovereign debt levels, which is huge. I mean debt in general is just huge globally. Um, and really, I mean, we people need to start looking at emerging markets and I know lots of bulls, lots of folks on, on Wall Street are always like really pushing emerging markets. But emerging markets are, unless you're exporting crude oil, you're hurting really, really badly um, from grain price increases, from fuel price increases. Um, and the same thing can be said for the U.S. consumer is when prices go up at the grocery store and prices go up for gasoline. Uh, we'll just see how the summer people feel. I think there's still enough pent up demand where people have been you know, stuck in their homes for so long or, or just didn't seeing their families. And so they're going to eat it. But at some point, they're going to stop eating the, like, you know, they're going to realize, I don't need that nice thing. And I think Netflix was a nice little, the earnings for Netflix could have been an indicator there of the, you know, they said they lost 200,000 subscribers. Obviously, it was kind of the beginning of this this tech cycle, which was going to come. Um, you know, this, I always say, Kathy, Kathy Wood's, like, tech all the time, and it just doesn't work, but Netflix uh, declined 200,000 users, and um, that doesn't seem like a ton, but it was like, the, it was the first time they've actually declined users. Well... You could think about they raise prices, so it's like it's like twenty around twenty bucks a month. And if you think about even just those two hundred thousand users, if they're saying, "Hey, I don't think I need this," or I, well, am gonna share my password until you come get me, right? <laughs> Whenever that happens, all, all that all that is, and it's just it's like there's and they said what there were, there were several million users doing that, but the reality is like if this is a considered not and and it's not a need to have item, and um that could be that's where things start getting. Start hurting and i think it was over a year ago when when jim kramer was on cnbc and he's talking about chipotle and he's just saying well you know inflation is it's not a problem because somebody will just open up another place and it'll be cheaper and i thought that's not how this works and people will stop like i mean i still am ordering chipotle not as much though because it's the cost of ordering a really nice salad from like sweet green and they're equivalent Um, so it's like, and, or it's like, do I go to the grocery store and do I get the meal or do I just go to a nicer restaurant and pay slight, you know, more, but if I'm paying, you know, if I'm paying 30 bucks for Chipotle, um, with chips and guac and everything, that's not, um, the benefit to like what it was. And I, I still think that, and I, I'm, I'm simplifying that for, for listeners, but. I think a lot of folks uh, on on the younger side, we you were saving money, you're buying Chipotle was at ten bucks at one point, and then it's fifteen yeah. bucks, and so it's the same thing with Netflix. Though is that this was the nice to have, um, and it, it's nice. Is it needed, or is it a nice to have? And I think if you're paying a lot of money at the pump, and you're paying a lot of money at the grocery store, uh, people are going to start cutting back. So I really do think this summer is going to be an important time to watch. Um, you know, how how people are driving. And I I think it's going to be fine. I don't think demand is going to come off a cliff. But I think the health of the consumer and how they think inflation is going to be and how they feel um, is going to be really, really important.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to your point about 10% CPI, was it wholesale CPI? Is it 10% going forward? Those are maybe previous numbers?
1: Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, it's if you break out so the whole number for the latest number we have so we'll get it we'll get the new number but the it's eight and a half percent was the um the latest the latest number we should be getting a new one, which was ex, is expected to be around ten percent um but if you break out the like the individual categories and you chart it and you can do this on the us bureau of labor statistics and just pulling up the charts um you see certain trends and they're quite clear it's like go look at 2007 go look at 2008 and see how How it looked then we have higher prices for beef and and most food items um, than we had at that time and natural gas prices i think are really really important Um, i'm actually a little more i'm more concerned about natural gas prices impacting the consumer than i am necessarily about four dollars at the pump and that's because uh if you're looking back to 2007 2008 levels we had, you know, these, these price spikes, but, and we had lots of inflation and problems with the economy and, and housing, but natural gas prices are, it's electricity. So electricity prices have continued to increase for the last, you know, if you chart that on U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're, they steadily are rising. And electricity prices, is it's very serious if your natural gas is going up, um, just like in Europe, obviously, that it's such a bigger deal than we appreciate here because we have so much of it. But if we're even seeing it, they're, they're, their bills are, are absolutely going through the roof. Um, and so the idea that this, you know, anybody resistant to the concept of we could we could have a recession, which is just two consecutive quarters of, of, of declining growth. I mean, we're going to have a recession like it's, yeah. it's going to happen. Um, and we were we just kind of bamboozled by this crazy growth we had in in coming out of COVID in 2021 that was ridiculous. Um, And this, you know, trillions of dollars, like 27 trillion sloshing around the global economy that just has sort of fueled all this stuff. Um, But I, I, still am concerned, like, even with when people keep saying, and I heard it tonight before I left and was listening to Bloomberg, but the consumer is still good. You know, the consumer still has all the savings. Someone should
0: talk to a consumer. That's what I want to say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You're I mean, like,
0: really? How in touch are
1: you? Yeah. And it's all that, expect- it's like, well, do I want to spend all the money in savings? Like, I will, people will have to do that. I mean, families will do that. But that's the point of where if they're spending their money in savings, they may not be spending on other stuff like Netflix or these other things. And that all has these compounding ripple effects in the economy. And when I hear um, stock advisors start to say, like, hey, look at Target instead of, you know, the fancy fangled tech, it's like Target and Walmart and all these other stocks, because those are the ones that do well when things are doing a little more poorly and you're going to the the cheaper stuff. So it's just the separating, you cannot separate the consumer and the health of the economy and um, and commodity stuff at all. And they all fold into each other. And economic growth um, is... Economic growth and the economy do really well when prices are low and stable, not when prices are high and inflation is going bananas.
0: Right. And then we've heard 50 basis point hike from the Fed. That's oh, yeah. Sorry. Of... Bringing it back to that. Yeah. Bringing it back yeah. to the Fed. Uh, and I think last time I heard mortgage rates at 525. Again, this is probably last week. These are all the mm-hmm. numbers. <laughs> uh, and how that all impacts everything when people are paying more for their mortgages, when people are paying higher interest rates, when people are paying higher gas prices and they're paying higher heating prices and higher electricity costs, and how that all factors in. And, and what particularly gripes me, and maybe you know, I'm going on my own tangent, is you hear the Biden administration looking at U.S. oil and gas producers and saying, well, you need to drill more, and this is on you, and don't be price gouging, and don't hurt the consumer. A, like we are the only prong in this wheel that's coming off the hinges as far as I'm concerned, and it really has no bearing of truth. And I want to get your thoughts on that uh, in particular, and you can circle back to the Fed and how you think the Feds
1: has yeah. hasn't handled so, things. I think I think we'll start with the Fed and go into housing because I, I do I spend a lot of time talking to folks now about this housing piece, which I think is really really important and rising uh, mortgage rates. Because um, I was actually I had to do my taxes and was just talking to my accountant, and we were. We were talking about mortgage rates today and the thousands of people who have been laid off in the mortgage industry because refi, and part of it is because the refi boom was so great because mortgage rates were so low over the past couple of years, but we've seen mortgage rates go from 3.2% in January to last week being 5.25%. You're correct, but now it's it's we're probably pushing, I, I had seen it was 5.35, but if you and I were actually to try to get a mortgage today, I guarantee it's going to be way higher than that. So what yeah. you see on the, on the sticker price is very different than what you actually have. Yeah, and so if you put it on google and you put the various cities it is um i mean you're saying like six percent and that that's where you start having to look back at the 2007 2008 levels and no we don't have as many adjustable rate mortgages out there but there are some um and yes and most of those a lot of those mortgages are better or healthier than they were in 2007 2008 so you know now, if you have a pulse, you can get an Escalade. But back then, you could, if you had a pulse, you could get a house. I mean, I do encourage people to watch The Big Short because it's not, it's not perfect, but it's a great it's, summary. Yeah, good movie. Of, of a, it's a great summary. Very entertaining. It's <laughs> very entertaining. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very entertaining movie. But it does that if you if you followed anything with the financial crisis. I mean, the just what happened in housing was huge. But something really important to point out then is 2007, 2008. The average home price was around was around $300,000. The average home price in the US now is $500,000 and the average mortgage is roughly that size. So we know in Denver the average home price is 700,000 and people just a few years ago were freaking out when it was average home price was 400,000. So the speed at which the the increase has been dramatic, and we have not seen, we never, we didn't even see that ramp up or that scale in that crisis, so when people. Can I clarify, sorry, uh, real quick on the list
0: price. So when you say 700,000, and I don't know the numbers, you know, I just was with a friend who, list price was 550, I think they paid 700. So when we say average price,
1: is that average list price or average sale price? It's average, so it's average sale price, and then if you look at new home sales, so I've actually, and this is, it's really important for oil, and I, I don't know if I get the reaction. I, I feel like I—it's it, a big deal. But I—you can chart new home prices, and you can chart U- U.S. home prices and U.S. oil demand, and they move in perfect lockstep with each other. Like no, literally right. perfect lockstep. So they go up together and they come down together. And I would bet my ass that they w- are going to come down together. I'm not saying that demand is going to crater or housing prices will crater, but this—the escalation in housing prices is not sustainable. It Agreed. simply is not sustainable. Because I, you can go around Denver, and I saw it all last summer and prior, like, in my neighborhood, of seeing these couples walk around, and they're like, they, they look fear in their eyes because they're they're going to buy a $800,000 house, and they're pushing themselves, like should they be buying a $800,000 house? Well, that's $200,000 more than they thought they were gonna buy the house for. They're gonna do it anyway because they're worried about getting pushed out and they won't be having, having it. Well, all that's great when you both have jobs and everything's working smoothly, but if you also start looking like, so the, the Fed has put out great data on housing and um, the biggest concerning factor for me, despite this, everybody's saying the health of the consumer is the amount of debt, is that when these housing prices are so much, Uh, so much money your mortgage bills are higher right Your, your actual bills are higher so your flexibility to quit your job maneuver jobs one one person not working it's it changes a lot um and i came out of school and i know you're a bit younger than me but i came out of school in the heart of the recession and that was real i mean high unemployment and you couldn't get jobs and i had people 10 years older than me that were getting you know Intern, not internships, but entry level, entry level yeah. jobs, and that's what it was competing with, and it was very scary because it's like I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. But those were families that couldn't find jobs either, and were willing to take anything. So this uh, this concept, very similar to how we think about crude oil prices, is we sort of like this is what's going on now, so this is what it has to be in the future. People think about that the, the way with the economy as well, and I think that you know the average person and family and consumers have to get savvy of realizing that you know they do need that savings, and you know with these bigger mortgage bills, I mean, so we added one trillion in debt. In um, the U.S., U.S. households added one trillion in debt um, in 2021 alone, um, and that is the single largest increase since 2007. Um, so that and that's because these mortgage rates and because of, of cars and everything are so high. But a trillion in debt for U.S. households is huge. It's, um, it's a it's just a huge number. So those debt levels are and obviously it just keeps like we had a peak in 2007, 2008, kind of came off, and then it's just been rising ever since. And so I just think it's a it, that. Th- those prices are really important, and then when mortgage rates go up, and going from three percent something th- in change to five five point four percent, and we haven't even had our first our first real rate hike yet. Yeah, like the so, Fed hasn't done anything but basically say, "Hey, we're going to." Yep. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to, and so it's already right, raising, and um, that the, I think it was two weeks ago the monthly mortgage payment went up twenty percent so from a year ago. So you that. that that figure in itself meaning that you have significantly less money to spend on other stuff. And Doesn't that's even, we haven't even touched inflation at that exactly. point. Yet. Yeah. I mean, we haven't so touched gas prices. That's just that's just the reality is that my pay my people's mortgage payments are higher than they were before. Bar none. That's that's it. And unless you're and I do not believe that people who are um the I know lots of people in Denver, it's is Denver's a unique place and you have lots of people from the East Coast and West Coast and it's still cheaper. But let's just say the rest of the country, when your home prices have went up that much, if your income has not went up that much, then it's a it's a different story and then you have all these all these other inflationary pieces, so you just have less distre- discretionary income and I don't think Netflix dropping, you know, 200,000 users is the end of the story of of these of, of some things. And the fact that like Netflix, we're all pretty addicted to it. So if they're declining at all, it, it's, they're not adding, I mean, it could have flatlined, but the, it's saying something. It's an indicator for yeah. sure. And
0: you know, what you're saying really reminds me of just anecdotally in my millennial group chat with my friends. We had a conversation the other day about how do you ask your boss for an 8% cost of living adjustment and an 8% raise based on inflation? And should I be asking for 10%? And should I walk if I don't get that because the market's so hot and I'm in tech and someone will pay me more and someone will match that? And I think it was just a really good anecdotal story of this is what's happening with wage inflation and a lot of my generation, our generation are expecting this. And if they don't get it, they're going to walk. Uh, and if they don't get it and they don't walk, their bills are going to be a lot more painful.
1: I, so that's fantastic. And I just want to, I am going to put your, eight, how old are you? I'm 27. Let's okay. time, time stamp this. Um, I am, I'm 36. <laughs> so we have, uh, oh my gosh, I'm 10 years old in you. So anyways, um, so big generational gap there. But I am fascinated by this sort of millennial piece or actually your Gen Z, I believe, right? I'm technically
0: a millennial, but I've had disagreements with some folks on my
1: board about it because I'm on the very tail end. Um, I'm technically a millennial, I'm not a good one. Um, not, not, I'm not an average millennial. But, anyways, despite that, I think this um, the the labor force piece is really important. I want to and make sure we get back to the Fed stuff because I, I think that I want to touch on on the Fed and and uh, what they're doing or not doing and with the implications for that and why it matters for 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 um, oil prices um, and everything. But this U.S. like I think U.S. labor um, is one piece, but we're seeing all over the world. So we're seeing this lack of drivers, lack of um, lack of people, you know, working on. I would say not lack of people working, but there has to be a lack of people working if we don't have enough truck drivers. If we don't have enough people working, we saw saw this in in the U.K. where they they were short. O- Almost two hundred thousand truck drivers, which was huge, and I think it was Boris Johnson who had said, oh, or somebody, you know, in the, somebody in the UK had said, uh, "Hey, don't it, don't ask for a price, don't ask for a wage uh, wage increase, and you'll help cool inflation." And it's like, okay, well, be that, like not my problem. Why don't um, you figure it out? Why don't you do a better job at managing the economic yeah, policy I, of our country? I think when so when when people see these, uh, but when people see like, hey, prices are or wages are going up, it's really not something that. Anybody you really want to see as an economist, I I think people have lost it, given that we we have so much, at least at the beginning of this administration, and and so much more of a democratic sort of socialist uh, regime in office um, that was very excited about you know raising wages and everything. It's like most economists are, are pretty split on this of do you wanna see higher wages or increase the minimum wage? Because all, yeah. that always gets passed along to the consumer and then prices just go up. So the people who, and this is the saddest part to me, is the people who want the, and I'm not talking about necessarily your peers and I wanna to get to that, but the people on the lower end who are seeing minimum wages increase and seeing wages increase are feeling the brunt of inflation the most. And so it is a spiraling effect and it is it is awful. So the people on the lower end spectrum, hit, inflation hits them the worst. And we, we did, inflation is for a number of reasons, but it is absolutely part because we have growth in entitlement programs and trillions of dollars. We had this administration and Congress wrote checks like a drunken sailor for a year in the midst of all this stuff. And I, I do believe that economists were intelligent enough to understand that, this would cause inflation. And we know this because when we were starting with stimulus measures and all these COVID freakouts, people would say, we don't have to be worried about inflation because these are not entitlement programs and long-term spending. When it gets into long-term spending, then we have some problems. And so that's where, it's not all from that. I mean, there's many, many things in the global economy that are causing inflation, but certainly the U.S. has led inflation and we have been on, we've been right up with Turkey and Brazil in terms of the rate of inflation. And that. Is a category that you just don't want to be in. I mean, it's it's quite scary. So um, I think from a that gets into this fiscal lag. I really think when people start talking about. Why people aren't working. So basic question I always get is like, why can't we find people to work in the field? Yeah. There is a fiscal lag. I think there's to your point about this. There's a generation, but not even generational. It is um, just a shift in how people are thinking about working. And a lot of people retiring, people staying home um, to have kids, um, the cost of daycare being expensive, all these things. And I was on a panel last week um, with these with these two women, and one was the uh, general counselor for Black Mountain Sand. And both these women were telling us about telling me about their respective businesses to this this group in, at the Texas Energy Council Symposium. And they were talking about how there is a there is a real shift in how people are thinking about work and how, you know, they, the woman, um, Kelly Roach, was talking about how lots of, some of the men, you know, are okay going to the office every day because they're leaving the kids and everything home. And she was kind of joking about it. But she was saying that everyone sort of adapted to some degree of a, you can work from home this day or that day. And I think COVID has changed how, and I, I don't, to me, I, I do not believe it's nothing is permanent, and we always shift back into things. So COVID did a lot of things to a lot of people, and it jarred people's perception. It had a severe impact to the oil and gas market. But this idea that like people will never go back to the office or that people will not travel. I mean, at the end of 2020, all the oil economists in the world said that you know oil demand uh, for business travel would never recover. And- oh, yeah. The other day, they're now coming out Oh, Business travel is back. It's totally fine. No Um, one's worried. Right. And I I think that you, business travel will actually probably have to, if the economy is backsliding, business travel will probably increase in a lot of ways because you will be competing. Like, um, I... It is a bigger deal for me. I would rather be in front of a client and talking to them and briefing them in person than doing a Zoom meeting. It is not the same. And um, if I certainly if I have to compete for that, I'm sure it's all going to be in person because it's a lot different than saying, "Oh, we'll just do it for my computer." And it's just it's there's a presence that's different from doing this podcast together. Is very different than w- w- if we had done it on Zencaster. Would have been easier with the button bot- <laughs> because uh, we have a lot no, of technical issues. But that being said. I mean, it just, there's a, there's a significant difference and, um, but I do want to get back to this uh, and ask you about this. Your, your generation Mm -hmm. at uh, these people, you're not that far out of college. So this has been a few years out of college. Um, but all these people have, if you had student debt, you haven't had to pay it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just got extended through August. So we're talking sometimes several hundred dollars, if not more a month in student debt, usually much more. (laughs) Yeah. So that hasn't been paid. So that's, when we we talk about these fiscal lags and people's comfort and the ability to switch jobs. It's like, well, wh- how would you feel if you um, if you had a thousand dollars if that payment that you had before or never had and you will have eventually yeah. hit you? How would you feel about that? How flexible would you feel about uh, because I think this these fiscal lags have let people feel flexible. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily it directly correlates to the work thing, but uh, asking for Wage increases because your cost of living is going up. It's like, well, I got a newsflash for everyone. I, I can't do that. I, I, get, I get prices increased to me, but I run my own business. And mm-hmm. I, I don't go to them and say, okay, the speaking fee increased by X percentage because of inflation. That's just not, It's not appropriate for business, and I, wouldn't, yeah. I don't want to well, do that's that. That's nice
0: because I, I will say I definitely have seen a significant amount of invoices come across my desk that have uh, – one of them the other day doubled. I was like, what in the world?
1: Yeah. I mean, pe- and people are doing it. People are passing yeah. it along. And I tell, you know, my dog guy that, that takes care of uh, Axel when I'm, I'm traveling, he had increased it. And I said, look, I appreciate that you're doing that. And I said, I will, but I'm going to meet you halfway. Um, and I said, because I have not got to, I'm not, I'm not doing that to people. I'm not doing that to businesses. Um I don't feel it's not right. It's not appropriate because then you got to realize that businesses are not making more money. They're expen- they're spending more money. Um, so when when people are asking for these wage price increases, that's the wage price spiral that gets really out of hand. And I'm not saying they 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 shouldn't necessarily. Their cost of living is going up and everything. I'm saying that's a that's a reality. But to switch jobs based upon it is a very short lived uh, a short term phenomenon that may well, not that's last. a millennial, right. You right. know, we're
0: like, flip, flip, flip to one place to the next,
1: um, which is a generalization, but sometimes true. But uh, it used to be that you didn't want to flip jobs every, I mean, it wasn't good to have on your resume that you had switched jobs every year. And we've, we've definitely seen during COVID where people are just job hopping like crazy. They're entitled.
0: Everyone's entitled, myself included. Uh, so let's circle back to, you made a comment about the Fed. And Fed policy and its impact on energy prices. Yes. And I want you to just rant.
1: <laughs> okay. So yeah. So I mean, and it, hopefully we we clarified that fiscal lag. So in addition to students, not the debt payment, it's also that you haven't paid if you haven't paid rent or whatever. So I think I do think fiscal lags are very serious in terms of everyone in into the workforce. So lots of stuff going on there. But the Fed side and and the Fed is relevant to that because we haven't actually we're just reducing our quantitative easing. So we're still there's still quantitative easing in the system and, and reducing and haven't even got to the Fed balance sheet, but the Fed was still enabling, still buying mortgage-backed securities. So the fact that you have housing prices to the level that they're at and, and the spending and the craziness in housing and you're still buying mortgage-backed securities, it just it, it, didn't, it doesn't add up. Um, but the Fed has been. I think I'd heard, um, and it was on Bloomberg. And I, I told somebody on a interview this earlier this week on a podcast earlier this week, being yesterday on a podcast about um, Jerome Powell ha, has been said to be one of the most politically savvy uh, Fed chairs, um, meaning that he he really knows he isn't taking the cues uh, from the administration. I, it's not like they're calling him up and saying do this, but it, he but he is uh, savvy interpreting them, and he did not become more hawkish until he was reinstated as Fed chair. And I I know people don't want to say that, but that's it's just a reality. Like he didn't actually start talking about raising interest rates until he real, his job was secure. And um and if you're I mean you have Elizabeth Warren who just came out and said hey if we don't curb inflation we we might lose the midterms. Shocking. You're like oh. wow news. Newsflash, flipping flash. <laughs> you had and you've had month over month. If you pulled the inflation numbers. That's what Jerome Powell last summer. Last summer, I mean, I I walk the dog and I listen. To what I do. I'm listening to Jerome Powell speak and you know the live stuff and I take listening to that stuff really seriously. But it's like he's like if we have month over month inflation, then we have a problem. And it's like we have had we, month yeah. over month inflation up until that point, and then we've considered can had it. So when they when he a couple months ago or a month ago when he's talking he says you know hindsight's 2020 20. if we knew then we knew now and it's like you hey. should have known but each time it went up every every two months it went up then you could have said we should have done something and now the real problem and what's really scary is that and why the risk of recession is is high is that you have to cool off the economy now and you don't you can't control all of it because all of that you inflation. can't control supply right.
0: right so you've got to control demand
1: right so you're you're Well, and you just, you have to attempt to do something because uh, one, if you don't raise rates, you can't lower them either when things are really bad. So you have no tools in your toolbox. So you should have been raising even a little bit, a quarter of a point. The fact that they didn't do it, that scares me from a political point of that there was some real ass-kissing there. And I just, I'm, it, it is really wrong to me that we weren't even doing small, small increases. And historically speaking, at these inflation levels, these are, we're in 1970s level inflation and oil price. I mean, we're in in Bananaville territory, and the fact that the Fed didn't do emergency meetings to say, hey, we're raising quarter point now, that that we haven't even had it. Everybody's talking about it. It's like, you could have already done it. You could have come out, and you could have said, hey, you know what? We may do a 50 basis point hike. We may do um, 0.50, but we're going to do 25 right now in this emergency meeting, and let the market interpret it, let it swallow it, let it deal with it, and then move on and see how it reacts. It probably would have
0: reacted well. The first rate hike, it always surges up
1: and goes positive. But, But you have to, you have the market is basically the, the Fed is supposed to signal what they're gonna do and the market interprets it and feeds hence mortgage rates everything it's like it's already moving right and that's the problem is with the with the yield curves and having inverted yield curves it's like an inverted yield curve signals recession and so people are like well oh, I don't know correlation
0: like, correlation I'm like bitch about it and come back to me later
1: well <laughs> and there's this thing called Phillips curve. Um, and it, at London School of Economics, I mean, it, we were all nerds, so, um, but they had like a t-shirt at LSE and it was like the Phillips Curve. And it's like in, the Phillips Curve is inflation and unemployment. And Switzerland was always on, like you wanted to be Switzerland because Switzerland always had low inflation and, um, and low unemployment. And or, yeah, yeah, low inflation, low unemployment. Well, we have that. So, and people don't realize that look at where oil prices were at when we had low inflation and low unemployment. And yes, it took us, you know, not every economic and business cycle is completely trivial to the president. But the president and and Congress have an ability to... um, help it they can they can help it one direction or the other and um something that happened done under obama is that they didn't actually spend like drunken sailors and they didn't do crazy stimulus and in many ways that was probably a good thing but um they didn't actually support necessarily probably support enough stuff maybe from a tax perspective and business side to really get the economy really really jolted Um, but at the same time we didn't see crazy inflation levels and then when trump came in it was on the upswing and um but on all that we had uh, especially in Trump, we had very s- lower, lower, and stable oil prices, and at the end of Obama, and production was coming up. So one, we had jo- some jobs from that, but also lower oil prices were significant. And I have done a lot of research on this. I've charted this. So you can look at look at GDP growth. Um, look at GDP. Growth and look at um, oil demand changes. They they track really nice tightly together. Um, so that's globally. But if you break it out on a country level, the countries that are really important to look at are developed economies like the U.S., like Germany, like Japan. Uh, because China and India will just demand crude oil regardless of the price of crude oil because their economies are were going up. That's not going to be the case going forward, but um, which is a, a whole nother thing. But when a whole another look- podcast. Someone said- it's all whole <laughs> the podcast. But when you look at developed countries like the U.S., I mean low stable you know sub 60 or around 60 oil prices were meaningful for the u.s economy because it was people were spent like it it helped people spending it also helped businesses um and you also had uh you had i don't want to get into the politics but you did have a a Lowering taxes is like you signal to business: Hey, business, we're here for you. But it was also oil and gas industry go to town, and prices were lower. That was actually really meaningful for Germany because Germany was an is is a industrial powerhouse. So lower energy prices for them were significant in terms of their economy. And you can see, you can just chart it and see what their demand looked like when prices were lower. Demand did well. Well, newsflash, folks: Europe's going to be hurt. I mean, they're hurting really bad, and this is going to have. I mean. Massive ramifications for people from a you know a, just being able to consume energy, but also the output that these countries can do it's in a long wartime. Time, right, it's, and there's
0: there's no end in sight to any of these problems. Yeah, and I do want to touch on U.S. production before we wrap up here. And you know I know we talked about a little bit earlier offline Liberty and Halliburton's earnings calls, and I think last time I checked, frac spread count was somewhere between 285 and 290, which is kind of where it's hovered with 20% dual simul frac. And I wanted to get your thoughts on kind of industry and if you think, I mean, we can't see a huge increase in anything coming online because horsepower is pretty maxed out at this point from my understanding. Uh, But I do want to get your thoughts on duck counts, on frack spread, on some predictions going forward. So that's how Gabby wants to wrap this up. Of like, that's all. I know. I'm like, let's up.
1: wrap it up with your favorite topic ever. With um, the topic that we go for now. <laughs> uh, no, we we will, and this will this will go a smidge longer, but we'll we'll, we'll close it with that. And those are uh, so um, make sure we, we hit all those. but right. So the both earnings calls were good. I mean, they were positive in terms of Liberties was was very very positive. So was Halliburton's. I disagreed with um, Halliburton's sort of take on. Um, the way they were looking at sort of the macro environment and geopolitics. So I, I still think, I mean, we haven't had a slug of earnings calls, but pre-earnings season, and I've been noting this on the podcast and to folks, is I wasn't really happy with the whole, you know, pie in the sky, north is the only direction we can go for oil prices, et cetera, because the, the logic behind it was sort of that it was very demand driven. There wasn't a lot of credence paid to the geopolitical tensions. And I really do believe that Oil prices today, twenty to thirty dollars of that is is strictly geopolitics. Um, so is, is fear, is a very fear-driven algorithmic trading as opposed to technical supply and demand fundamentals like the. So that that's super important. But um, and so Halliburton was a little bit off, I think there. Um, however, the story was the same in terms of like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna start to be able to meaningfully increase pricing. And I talked about this on the podcast with Matt Gallagher and others is that. The service side of the business is incredibly important um, because, I mean, as people know, like the service sector, if you do or don't know, but if you're in the industry in the U.S., for sure that you know is the service sector, the ability of the nimbleness of the service sector really enabled like the U.S. shale boom to happen in the first place for right or wrong. Um, of, of burning cash on the upstream side versus also you know adding frac fleets like no tomorrow and then you know having too much supply, uh, but the reality is that that flexibility and that redundancy and that nimbleness um, of businesses in the service sector really enabled shale to prosper. But these businesses also have to make money, and we've had consolidation in the space, and we've had you know depths of despair in obviously 2020 for the business, and so it's recovering from the business. Now we should not have had that. People should have been drilling and completing wells, not necessarily them on production but that aside i mean that shouldn't we shouldn't have had that we and i certainly hope that this industry prices drop to 80 tomorrow that they don't slow that they really take a lot of consideration how they slow this down uh but that being said on the liberty on liberty's call um i love chris right but I have to say, I mean, he really, he opened up his uh, his his earnings call the way I have been speaking on panels and talking a lot lately of just like, this is an energy crisis. This energy crisis started in 2021. And he's like, but that aside, we'll get into the earnings. Uh, but they obviously take, you know, energy security, energy poverty very seriously. And so he, he does fold in his business though of saying, hey, we're fracking. I mean, we're in the business. Things are growing. We're doing this. And so if you actually pull that to a macro perspective from a macro being U.S., us macro, um, activity is up, right? Everybody is adding. And so when we talk about these, uh, labor shortages, which they do talk about their earnings call, and we talk about sand tightness, which both of them talked about being in the first part of this year was really, really big, but it's, it's been somewhat alleviated. So people are getting it. Um, when we talk about all that, like, I always say, look back, look, the rig count, and I, the rig count's less relevant now, but it's still really relevant because we're, we're nearing where we were pre-COVID. We're not quite there, but these rigs are doing far more with less. Um, they're lateral. Oh almost. my gosh, these lateral lengths. If it's you, insane. It's absolutely insane. When you're looking at these companies that are 15,000 foot here, 15,000 foot there, and, and then it's also like your average, just your average lateral length in the middle I believe, is about 13,000 foot. Oh, so... It's yeah, like you can't
0: even see the rig once you see. Yeah, it
1: you just you're just that's your average, and so the ability that means that a lot of companies have blocked up their acreage, um, and that means that so you have these longer laterals, and so there's a lot of efficiency gains from that, um, and you have multi-pad. More companies are having you know more wells on a pad, and you have to think about it because if you listened to earnings calls and you had listed earnings calls for a decade, you would have thought that we would should have been simulfracking several years ago, but we weren't because because we companies only got to the point quite recently where they had six wells on a pad. And so it wasn't on average, you didn't have the perfect little Exxon 20 wells on a pad, you know, just mow it down. Like that wasn't everyone. So now that the point that we're at this sort of stage that that is game changing. And I think that was, um, but the real takeaway for me in in both earnings calls was that was pricing was that, you know, there's multiple dynamics to why service pricing will increase. And that's that you definitely have overall inflation, but also that, um, it's just a step up, right? It's the activity is, is stepping up. And so the industry is, a, you know, the oil and gas industry, you have to sort of appreciate outside inflation for all the components. I mean, um, like chemicals and everything, but you also have to appreciate when oil prices go up, they have inflation because a lot of their components and their use for to fueling their equipment is, is, um, yeah. energy pipe's prices significantly more expensive these days oh, so, so yeah that's not steel so pipe, still casing it, so steel pipes still casing I mean, if, if you can even get it um and, and the people side but even then when when you have high oil prices and you have everybody ramping up drilling the drilling side and the completion side also see, feels that because so much of your business involves um involves parts of the energy right you're, you're fueling your your rigs with diesel or, or net gas or, or like any any component even just if pretend it's it's free green electricity, um, there's still a cost component to it. So all of it, energy prices, impacts the ability to produce energy. Um, So the industry is quite flexible in understanding, I would say flexible, but oil and gas industry understands that very well in terms of how inflation works. This is something I think really important in terms of how the price increases are working though, is that activity is ramping up. Um, has been ramping up for over, for the past, the better part of two years. Private operators were leading the way with that. And, yeah. so, and you know, they've continued to do so because they, they don't have um, the requirements on them. Yeah, to, they don't have the yeah. requirement. They don't have the ESG and investor pressure. And so they have a lot more flexibility. And because at these oil prices at $100 oil, everything looks pretty damn good. And that's something that neither talked about. But I really do think that I'm surprised we haven't heard of people talking about, oh, that tier, tier four acreage is terrible. It's like, well, Whatever your tier four, like, <laughs> tier four acreage, and you can see on a map, you can just see yeah. where private companies are drilling is that you have so much actual acreage and availability at these at these oil prices. So I would say you don't bet against U.S. oil production or nat gas production or don't don't bet against the industry. And I think uh, Liberty's call was sort of case in point of that, that if they're able to sort of steadily increase these prices and, and the service sector is able to, you know, begin to make some money. That's important. They do yep. need to make money because they need. You need a sustainable service sector to have a sustainable upstream sector. And everybody needs to sort of work in tandem. Now, if you get to these points, places where everybody you start adding too many frac fleets, that'll be a problem. But companies like I think Liberty was talking about that they, they don't. They're not adding like they're not going to bring on a digi. You know, electric frac electric frac fleet unless they have a. You know, unless they have somebody on the other side that absolutely wants that. Um, so I would say we're we continue to evolve in the service sector, and this will this we will continue to evolve. That we'll continue to evolve pricing. Oh, and the the comment about sand that they said that they
0: yeah that was interesting. I didn't realize yeah that.
1: the decoupling. So and this is why I say the business evolves, and I love this point is that so if you're not paying attention to it, you're gonna miss it because people we went from a few years ago, you know, several years ago where um everybody everything went through the service company, right? Your sand, your chemicals, everything. And then the operators were like, oh no, 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 let's decouple. Let's let's separate everything because, and it took a lot, it, it took a lot out of the service sector too because they, they, I do not say they're passing along the cost, but it was definitely a point of, I mean, their margins there. So the, there's a reason why the operator did they're, they're buying their own sand, they're buying their own chemicals, and then they're just using the service provider. So you're sort of making, you're decoupling everything. And now um, Liberty was mentioning that they have control of the sand, that it actually was in their favor. It worked in their favor because these operators needed sand and they couldn't get it. And this logistics and last mile, which when you can't get a truck driver and you can't get anyone to work in the field, that's a pretty big deal. So I do think that, I mean, as you ebb and flow with the industry, like these things change. So we could go back to, we, we in theory, could go back to seeing a little bit more of, of um, what, and I would say integration to a degree of sand and chemicals, for example, because the operators are having a hard time finding it and you would have you know service providers that may be able to do, um, or at least even just spending the time on it. Um, so I, I think that's it's relevant. And if they can make sure they have the, the, the trucks on the road and the, and the people in the field.
0: So I think that that's a good place to wrap up for a time perspective. And at another time, we're going to dig into a lot more uh, on the U.S. production side. But this has been such a robust conversation. And I just really appreciate getting the opportunity to pick your brain. And I'm hopeful that we can do it again. uh, Because for everyone listening, I'm sure you share my same sentiment that Trisha really is the brains of the operation. And it's nice to give you space to really run with some
1: things. I appreciate that. So um, that was fun. That was fun being a guest on the on on my podcast. So that, that was awesome. And you you were great at the interview questions. And we will have to have another one because we didn't even get into the nitty I know. We didn't US get USA into production. the nitty gritty.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're going to do it again. That's we will do it again. Coming to your podcast next. Uh, yes. What did we call me? A flipperoo? A flipperoo. Another flipperoo. Yes, another flipperoo.
1: <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, Gabby. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And we will see you next week. Bye, guys.